Welcome to Civicus Voices. I'm your host, Artie Narsi, a Civic Space Research Officer at Civicus. We're nearing the end of our second season of this podcast, where we looked at the freedom of peaceful assembly, or the right to protest, looking at activists and organizations defending this right globally. For our final episode, we're going to be exploring the role of refugees in protests. I'll be talking to a researcher at Human Rights Watch who works in the Refugee and Migrant Rights Division. And later in the episode, we'll hear from a Sudanese refugee who's been advocating for refugee rights. But let's start off this episode with some context which I hope will explain why exactly this conversation is such an important one to have. At the beginning of 2022, there were more than 27 million refugees worldwide, with over 53 million people internally displaced in their home countries. In the past decade, the number of refugees globally has doubled. People have been forced to flee their homes because of war, conflict, torture and violence in order to seek safer environments. But in recent years, climate change has even added to this equation. Floods, droughts and heat waves taking place in certain regions are so brutal and deadly that people feel obliged to leave and seek refuge elsewhere. And as global displacement reaches all-time highs, the right to seek protection has never been more important for people. This is a fundamental right that is enshrined by international law. But despite this, refugees face inhumane treatment, including brutal pushbacks that result in death and discrimination. Protecting people forced to flee is a collective global responsibility. Once they are physically safe, refugees and asylum seekers should have the opportunity to heal, learn, work and thrive. But often, this isn't the case. And for this reason, refugees take to the streets to protest, to demand their fundamental rights, to ensure that their voices are heard and that their concerns are addressed. For more on this, I'm speaking to Nadia Hardman, a researcher in the Refugee and Migrant Rights Division of Human Rights Watch, who monitors and documents human rights abuses against asylum seekers, refugees and migrant populations. Nadia has worked with refugee populations from Syria, Iraq, Myanmar, Thailand and Palestine. Nadia, thank you so much for joining us on Civicus Voices. Thanks for having me. Nadia, to get us started, could you please break down for us what the international law says in regards to refugees and asylum seekers? For example, is the right to freedom of peaceful assembly included under these international laws? It's a really good question. It depends, to be honest, on the country that you're talking about as to what rights a refugee or asylum seeker might have. There's lots of international law that states can sign up to that protects the rights of asylum seekers and refugees and you know displaced populations, but not all states have entered into those agreements. So there's like the Refugee Convention, which is you know the kind of basic treaty in international law, which gives asylum seekers and those who have refugee status, who've basically been determined to be refugees, a lot of rights. And, you know, that's great. I mean, it gives them access to residency and usually the right to work in a country. 
etc. But lots of states haven't entered into those agreements, but it doesn't really matter. You know, the refugee protection regime basically sets out a way in which an individual who's had to seek protection in another country can live a life and participate in dignity in a way that's kind of documented and protected. So the Refugee Convention does that and lots of states incorporate it into their domestic law. And some some states go farther than that and they give, you know, a lot of protections to allow people to live and work in a fully participatory way. But the countries in which I work, you mentioned Myanmar, you mentioned Syrian refugees, and a lot of the countries where displaced populations from, you know, these areas, refugees, basically, in neighboring countries like Lebanon and Turkey and Thailand, you know, further Hinge and Myanmar, they haven't entered into these international agreements. They haven't signed up to the Refugee Convention, but international human rights law still applies. And the most important principle is that you can't send someone back to a place where they could face torture or serious harm. So, you know, even if they haven't ratified the Refugee Convention, it doesn't matter. They can't be sent back, although, you know, oftentimes they are. When it comes to the right to public participation, to freedom of protest, there isn't like a separate regime for asylum seekers or refugees. The same laws would apply. But the problem that you find, and again, the places where I work, most refugees and asylum seekers and displaced populations generally don't have access to documentation. So because the state hasn't ratified the Refugee Convention and because they don't provide for a lot of the ways in which, you know, you can protect someone's status in a country because they fled persecution in another, they are undocumented, they don't have a right to public participation or to work, so their freedoms are curtailed. And that's just at a basic level. At a more draconian level, these refugees are actually kind of ghettoed into areas, forced to live under the radar, self-censor themselves, don't move around, you know, live in informal settlements, are really off the grid, just so that they are not noticed by the refugee host country. And, you know, <laughs> the right to protest, the right to, doesn't really mean anything if you're just scared to, to even go to the local shop to buy your groceries. So it's not that that right doesn't exist because it exists for all people. And of course, just generally in international law, you can limit certain rights. And, you know, public participation is one of that in, in favor of national security at times. It's not a right which applies always or a prohibition which applies always. Like the prohibition on torture is never something that can be curtailed, whereas the right to protest can. But, you know, that aside, I would say that where I work and the populations I'm dealing with, and I work in the countries that have the most refugees in the world, like Turkey, like Lebanon, which is the highest per capita population of refugees in the world, that right is pretty meaningless. You know, when going to the hospital is a frightening prospect because you are undocumented, you could be picked up, you could be arrested, and you could actually be deported to Syria, for example. Now, throughout the season, we've been speaking about the right to peaceful assembly and how powerful it can be in bringing about change. Would you, in your work, have witnessed or seen any sort of change coming about for refugee rights through protests or through other forms of, of activism? Look, fundamentally, the activism of that sort, you see many refugee and displaced communities, you know, are well empowered themselves to publicly participate. It's just, as I said, the areas in which I work, that ability, you know, has to be weighted against the authorities' long arm, which could extend to arrest, detention and deportation. I mean, we've seen instances where the protesting gets media attention. 
So for example, you know, Afghans right now in Indonesia have been waiting out many, let's say, years of resettlement claims, you know, living a life of limbo almost by um, not having access to employment or basic services while they wait out an opportunity to be resettled elsewhere. And, you know, they protested in front of various institutions and this got media attention. Whether it brings about any kind of lasting change is something that, you know, is difficult to measure, particularly where I work. I would say probably in other contexts, you know, this has brought about potentially change. But yeah, it is difficult where I am working to see the kind of change that would ensure people just have access to their basic rights. And I mean, particularly right now where we've seen such a solidarity and outpouring of sympathy for Ukrainian refugees. I've seen a lot of refugee communities in other parts of the world, you know, raise their voice and say, but, you know, why is our claim for asylum not equal to a Ukrainian's claim for asylum? And that is well said and well heard. I think that's an incredibly important point that you made, the disparity in the way refugees are treated depending on which part of the world they reside in has been quite stark and highlighted, particularly with the Ukrainian crisis. Obviously, as someone who advocates for change, what sort of critical change would you like to see in the work that you do in terms of refugees being guaranteed basic human rights? I mean, that's a big question. I think right now, I would say in the current context and everything playing out in the world, the dismantling of the idea of a good and bad refugee. The fatigue that states feel is generally associated with protracted conflicts like the Syrian conflict, like genocide in Myanmar. There's so many different areas where displacement crises are protracted and the fatigue of the humanitarian sector and donor funding follows new crises. So Ukraine is the new big crisis and, and of course should attract major amounts of funding and solidarity. But you know what I see is this division between a perception of good and bad, real and unreal asylum claims, if you like, or groups being labeled as economic migrants. Everyone has the right to have their asylum claim you know, tested. Um, no one should be sent back to a country where they could face serious harm or, or torture. And these principles, you know, should be upheld no matter where you're from. And most importantly, no matter what color your skin is, because really that's what I see it's about in today's world. And that is not okay. Lastly, Nadia, what can civil society and the international community do to support the causes of refugees and their rights? I mean, I think the fundamental premise on which refugees and displaced populations flourish is integration into communities. People want to work, people want to contribute, people don't want to be branded a refugee that needs services and assistance and, you know, are essentially beneficiary, the terms that the humanitarian sector give them. They want to contribute. And it's been shown that the more economically integrated uh, refugees, the more kind of resilient and robust they are. And I mean, that has an impact in all positive ways. If you squeeze someone, if you, you know, force them to live off aid, if you basically, you know, push them so far under the radar, their ability to contribute to society is extremely limited. And so for, for me, it's, it's a recognition that migration is positive that refugee standards are international legal standards 
and that we should be creating legal and safe pathways everywhere we can to you know allow people to seek refuge this very fundamental principle of international law Nadia thank you so much for joining us in Civicus Voices thank you So Nadia really touched on some important points particularly on how different the stakes are for refugees when it comes to the right to protest. They faced restrictions, they might face further detention or deportation, so that right is not as accessible as it is for other people who might take to the streets to protest. The other point which I think was really important to make which Nadia did is the disparity in the ways in which refugees are treated this idea of good versus bad refugees particularly based on the geographic location of the person or the race of the person and this sort of discrimination that takes place within refugee communities and countries who are working on relocation or protection for refugees really needs to be tackled globally. For more of an on-the-ground perspective, we have a story of Abdul Aziz Mohammed. Abdul Aziz is a Sudanese refugee who became an advocate for refugee rights while under long-term detention at the Australian Government Detention Centre in Papua New Guinea. In 2019, he was awarded the Martin Ennals Award for his tireless work on behalf of his fellow detainees. Here is his story. The reason why actually I stand up for the right of the refugee is because where we were at Manus Island, it's a place where if you don't speak, no one will know your existence because this is an, a specific area that the Australian government has deliberately decided to use it as a hidden spot. They decided to put people on Manus Island so that they can send a strong message to whoever wants to come to Australia by boat or want to seek asylum from Australia that you are not welcome and don't come to Australia. That was actually the message that they want to send. The simplest way for me to describe the environment in that place is just like a hell. It's really worse than a prison because if you are in a jail, you know based on your crime that you have committed or based on the sentence that yeah, the judge or the jury had decided, you know, you will spend your time in the jail. But on Manus Island actually Australia they stand as a judge, as a jury and as a lawyer and as an executor, which means that there's no time limit. You can stay for 10 years, 15 years, no one knows how many years you're going to stay. And that was what is really motivated me to say I have to stand up. I have to speak on behalf of all of my friends. And it wasn't only me who actually took the stand. Some they decided to speak publicly, some they decided to write a book about it. Among our strategy at the beginning to stand up for our right was to protest. And our protest was chanting what you want freedom, what you want freedom. And actually it was a strong message. At that time we were asking the authority that could you just process us? We want to process. We want to know whether we are refugees or not. If we are refugee, we deserve to stay. I mean, if we are not refugee, we have to find another alternative option. We cannot just stay there and eat and sleep like an animals. And the response of authority was pretty horrible. In early 2014, they marched in, they killed deliberately one of the uh, asylum seekers in front of us, and it was just to send us a strong message that do not protest. You have to stop protesting, otherwise you will end up being like your friends. So the reaction of authority has actually encouraged us and gave us more ideas that these people if we don't stand up we are going to be in this place 
or incarcerated maybe for 10 years or maybe for 15 years. So we have to find an alternative way to stand up. And that way actually is a hunger strike. We cut off food and drinks for 14 days. Anytime when someone actually collapse or lose a conscience, what happens is like they will take you to the hospital and then you get a drink. And then the moment you gain your consciousness, you ripped it off and then you walk back to the center. So that was actually one of the powerful protests to a point that even the authority in the country, I mean, in Australia, they start shaking upside down and they sent all the service providers, for instance, like the case workers, they took them out of the island and they start bringing more nurses and doctors because things are getting out of control. So what happened at the end, they decided to victimize another handful of people. So which means that they play the tactic of if we can pull out all the leaders, we'll break this hunger strike or this protest. And it works perfect. The moment when we have been pulled out of the detention center, sent to a prison, the hunger strike actually lasted for another 48 hours. The authority decided to use this strategy by saying, okay, we took your leaders to the prison and we are going to deport them. We are going to actually sentence them in prison and we are going to send them back to deport them back to their country of origin. And that was actually sort of a scare tactic that they have used and people, they decided to eat. That was Sudanese refugee and activist Abdul Aziz Mohammed. And what Abdul Aziz was speaking about is how protesting can manifest in different forms. They spoke about how they were protesting in the detention center, chanting for freedom, and how the protests evolved to hunger strikes, where the refugees decided to stage a hunger strike for a number of weeks in order to get the government's attention. And I think a hunger strike in particular is incredibly difficult, where the refugees are putting their lives on the line, but it also highlights the different forms in which protests manifest, given the situation, and in this case, refugees demanding for their fundamental rights in a detention center. But I also think what Abdulaziz highlighted again here, and this is something we've heard earlier on the show, is how the stakes for refugees are so different. The restrictions that they face are incredibly harsh, from harassment to targeting of refugee leaders, as in the case of Abdul Aziz and the people in the detention center. So I think that what we need to realize is the right to peaceful assembly, while it is a fundamental right, not everyone has equal access to this right. And particularly in this episode, we are seeing that refugees have to fight even harder to demand their fundamental rights and find alternative ways because protests is not always something that is accessible to them. That's it for this episode and for our second season of Civicus Voices. I hope you found our conversations as insightful as I have and I hope you've learned something about the freedom of peaceful assembly and about the people and activists who are tirelessly defending this right globally. From South Africa to Myanmar, Palestine to Pakistan, I want to thank you for joining us on this journey in exploring the different contexts and consequences of protests and protest action. If you want more resources on this topic, make sure to visit our Civicus platforms or check out the work being done by organizations like Human Rights Watch. If you've missed any of the episodes this season, be sure to go back and have a listen. You can find Civicus online and on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe, listen and rate the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thank you to all our guests this season for taking the time from the vitally important work they're doing to share their expertise and stories with us. 
And thank you to you, our listeners. We really look forward to having more conversations about these issues and continuing to shine the spotlight on organizations who are defending fundamental rights. Civicus Voices is produced by Amal Atrakuti, Alna Schütz, Jermaine Kricher, and the Civicus team. My name is Artie Narsi, and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>